Thank you for joining us for worship this morning. My name is Robbie Schmipperger. I'm the pastor here at Ironworks Church in Westchester. And I'm grateful to the many volunteers who are helping pull off this uh, live stream service for you this morning. It's pretty awesome to uh, just see how all this has come together very quickly in the past uh, two weeks. And before we come to our, our teaching time, as we're going to be looking at Leviticus chapter 25, verses 8 through 17. As we come into this uh, text, I want to acknowledge something. Many of you have lost things over the past two weeks. Maybe, maybe you've lost financial security. Maybe you have lost your job. Perhaps you've lost your income for the foreseeable future. And the majority of us have lost a degree of confidence as to what tomorrow holds. Perhaps you've lost your dream wedding. Or perhaps you have lost your special romantic getaway. It's been a heavy week for us once again. And as we come to God's word this morning, we're bringing all that pain. We're bringing all that angst. We're bringing all that confusion. And we're coming before God with all this. And we're looking to God's word. We're saying, speak to us. And God's word is given to us for every moment of our lives. And so we come to this text. And as we're expecting and we're looking for hope God gives us comfort as we come to God's word. And so again, today we're looking at Leviticus chapter 25, verses 8 through 17. And as we're looking at the book of Leviticus, as we're looking at the book of Leviticus, uh, we want to consider uh, God's wisdom for our lives today, as it's incredibly and increasingly relevant. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and you can follow along on the words as they come uh, up on the TV screen. You shall count... Seven weeks of years, seven times, seven years, so that the time of seven weeks of years may give you 49 years. Then you shall sound a loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. When each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan, that 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In, its, in this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the jubilee, and he shall sell, sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price, and if the years are few, you shall reduce the price. For it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we ask that, that you would now speak to us. That you would, you would comfort us in our affliction. That you would comfort us and that you would speak to us and lead us. For you are our loving, providing Father. And so Father, we come to you this morning. We look to you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You need to reset. That is what my basketball coach would yell at me 
from the sidelines when I was playing basketball in high school. And he would say this phrase to me and my entire team and on various occasions, but very specifically, he would yell this phrase at me when I would be fouled while I was going up for a shot on the basketball hoop. He would yell, you need to reset. And what he was saying to me is that he was saying something that he, he actually knew what was going on in my heart and my mind at that time. He knew I was angry. He knew I was frustrated. He knew that I felt wronged. And so he also knew that if I would go to the foul line in that, with that mentality, it would honestly be like I was throwing bricks at a backboard and I would never have made a shot. He was telling me to take a moment to breathe and to calm down. And this is actually a parenting strategy. We're parents of young children. We tell our young children to take a deep breath and count. One. Two. The question I want us to consider this morning is, what if God is calling all of us to a reset? What if God is calling us to a reset? As Christians, we believe in the truthfulness of God's word, which tells us that we all are sinners, we, that, which means that we all have this natural inclination to break things and to mess things and to, to, to wrong each other. And so the reset that God is calling us to, that I really want us to consider this morning, is not a reset to go back to the way things were. But it's a reset for us. To, the, the reset I want us to consider is, the re, is how God has always intended us to live. So what if God is calling us to a reset? And as we look at this passage from Leviticus 25, we're going to see that this reset includes three very particular things. The first thing is trusting in God's work. Trusting in God's work. Consider uh, verse 11. On the year of Jubilee, you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, or ga nor gather the grapes from its undressed vines. Here we see that God is actually saying, don't work. And within Israel's economy, this was actually a common command. We, this was a command that was always attached to their week, their annual rhythms, and, and more in, in the form of the Sabbath. The Israelites understood that their time was not their own. Every single day belonged to God. They would either work or they would either rest. And the, on the Sabbath day, with the seventh day of the week, they would rest. And so they would not work aside from work that was either a necessity or mercy. And that was the Sabbath day. And God also would give them the year of the Jubilee which would be the 50th year in, on their calendar. And this was meant to occur every 50 years. And, but if you read the Old Testament closely, if you read it closely, you'll notice that the Israelites never celebrated the year of Jubilee. And I love, as we are beginning to dive into this uh, text very briefly, I love the context that Leviticus finds itself. Because their context, this book is within the experiential history of Israel. The, the context is that God just rescued Israel out of the land of slavery, out of physical slavery in Egypt. And the, the Israelites largely forgot about God while they were there. In fact, they kind of had this whole Stockholm syndrome type thing. When, it, when Moses encounters God from what, the very first time in Exodus 3, he says, who are you? Who am I going to go back to my people and tell who is sending me? That's the entire book. That's the entire context that the book of Leviticus is written in. And in fact, like Genesis, 
a different book. Genesis is telling them who they are and where they're coming from. Exodus is telling them what God has done for them. It's recording their history. And Leviticus very specifically is addressing them and telling them how they are meant to come before God at this time. And what we see throughout all these books in the very earliest pages of the, the, the Old Testament is that we have this picture that God is leading them, that God is guiding the Israelites, that God is protecting them and providing for them. In the book of Numbers, we see God leading Israel with a pillar, a, 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 a pillar of a cloud then he, or a pillar of fire. And then he would provide manna or then he would provide quail. And so within the entire experiential history of Israel, they are told over and over and over again that God provides. And the Sabbath challenged that entire narrative. The year of Jubilee, challenged, not, it challenged them to trust that God would provide for them. It would reinforce what they already knew. And so as you think about the Sabbath for a moment, it's one thing to trust that God's going to provide for you on the seventh day because, hey, you just worked for six days and you have to trust God to provide for you for a 24-hour period. But the year of Jubilee is incredibly drastic because the year of Jubilee would challenge Israel to trust in God for an entire year. Where you, have, where you think to yourself that I have worked so hard building up generation after generation of wealth and providing for my family. And I'm going into this 50, 50th, 50th year where for an entire year I would trust that God is the one who provides for us. Just imagine that. Just imagine that. Where for an entire year, for one year, for 52 weeks, for 365 days, you would not work. Just imagine the things that would run through your mind at that time. Perhaps you would be thinking to yourself, how am I going to provide for my family? What am I going to do with my time now? Because what you would realize is that all of a sudden God is constraining you where he is limiting your productivity, your work, and everything else. But fundamentally... What would arise is the motivations. Your own motivations would arise for you as to why you feel this impulse to work, why you feel this impulse to do other things. But at the very base, the thing that you'll be challenged is that what are you truly putting your hope and your trust in? Are you trusting and hoping that your provision comes through your work? Or is your, are you trusting in the fact that God is the one who is providing for you? But because the simple truth that we need to realize right now is that trusting God is hard. Trusting God is very hard. Because just to say, I trust God, means that you need to believe a lot of other things about God. You have to believe that God is good, that God is reliable, and that God wants your best. All those things are included in the statement, I trust God. That God is trustworthy and true. And so even as we just kind of like think through those things of where we say God is good, that God is reliable, God wants what is best for you. As you think about those things, who defines those terms? Who defines what goodness is or what reliability means and what your best is? It's not us. God's the one who defines those things for us. If you look at the earliest pages of scripture where we see Adam and Eve tempted by the devil, we actually see them... T- believing in a lie where they themselves are rejecting God's truth and embracing their own ideas about God, where they themselves are defining what is really good and what their best life really looks like. 
And this difficulty that I'm getting at, that trusting God is hard, is the reason why Israel never celebrated the year of Jubilee. Because it was incredibly countercultural to everything they knew. It's countercultural to what they knew about from their life in Egypt, and it's countercultural to them as they're going into the promised land of Canaan. And it's countercultural to you today as well. Do you trust that God is good, that He is reliable? And that he wants your best. We, we can say yes to all these things because we have this lived out for us and exemplified for us in the life of Jesus Christ. We know that God is good because of Jesus. We know that God is trustworthy because of Jesus. And he, we know that he wants the best for us because of his son dying upon the cross for us. And there is in fact a picture of that in our text today. The picture of that is that the year of Jubilee would start on the day of atonement. And that's verse 9. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all the land. And the picture that we have is that we, the, the resounding message that we have from Leviticus is that we are able to trust God because we are forgiven by God. That we have been reconciled to him. And so that you, right now, you, we are all living in a moment where we have been given an incredible opportunity we have been given an incredible opportunity where we are forced to stay home to, and where we also have this opportunity for where we are forced to sit at home and to lean into our relationship with God, to read scripture, to pray, and to learn more about God. Just consider this. Consider this. The Apostle John, he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, And while he was there in exile, he wrote the book of Revelation. And what we see just right there is while, while one of the apostles is in exile, while he is in solitude, he has this incredible, incredible revelation of God. And while we're not writing scripture by any stretch of the imagination, when we are alone, when we are practicing solitude, we can have an incredible learning experience and revelation from God as well. Now, perhaps you're struggling with prayer. And this is something I, I understand tremendously. And if you're struggling with prayer, I encourage you to read the Psalms. Read the Psalms and embrace their invitation to you. Because as you go through the Psalms, they are inviting you and begging you to have an honest expression with God. Consider Psalm 77, where Asaph is writing uh, this Psalm. And he says, God, you are the reason for my insomnia. And Well, he's literally saying that, God, you are the one who's keeping my eyelids open. But he's pointing out that here is this that psalm just points out that there's this honest expression about our angst coming before God. But as you look at this within the psalms, as we are honest with God, as we approach God with, our, with intentionality and honesty, that is when we'll grow. And, if you're, and not only will you grow in this time, if, if you embrace this time to learn about God, you'll actually find yourself being transformed. That is the first opportunity that you're being given. That is the first thing about the reset that God is calling you to, to trust God as your provider. The second opportunity, the second aspect of the reset that God is calling you to is to deepen community. Is to deepen community. We see this in our text in verse 10. And, and on the year of Jubilee, that where you would return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his own clan. Some translations include family. That's verse 10. And one of the, this is an incredible gift of the year of Jubilee. Because everyone would return to their home and to their family. They were given time to slow down, 
to set aside their work and to focus on their immediate community, to prioritize their relationships and to deepen their love for one another. And, and I, I'm, I'm chuckling to myself because we have an incredibly challenging moment and it's the challenge of social distancing, of isolation, where you do not naturally see people outside of your home unless you're walking a dog. And as we're forced into this, this period of social distancing and isolation, we realize perhaps more than ever that we are actually created for relationships. That we realize that we are actually made to know and love one another and to be known and loved in turn. That is God's design for our lives. So how can we deepen our community? How can we honor God's original intent for us amid this challenging season of social distancing? How can we deepen our relationships? Well, perhaps we don't, let's just acknowledge that we don't actually or properly relate and interact with one another. Kyle Bennett, in his book, Practices of Love, he points out that we often intrude into people's lives. We dominate their attention. We disrupt their lives. And so what, what Kyle Bennett call, calls us to and points out is that we need to change the ways that we interact with one another. And the way that we do that is through the spiritual practice of solitude. And so as you withdraw from relationships for a moment, what you can do as you withdraw is that we can pray for others. And so this, what I'm pointing out is that the spiritual practice of solitude is not just about our life with God. It doesn't just have that vertical dimension. It has a horizontal dimension where the spiritual practice of solitude even shapes our love for our neighbors. It's given to us. This is a practice that's given to us to help deepen our community. Think about the life of Jesus with me. Why did Jesus, as was his custom, and we read this throughout the, the Gospels, why did Jesus, as was his custom, wake up early and withdraw and go off by himself to pray? The, the, well, the answer is right there in the, the text, that, God goes, that Jesus goes out to pray. But what is Jesus praying about? What is Jesus spending his time praying for as he's coming before the Father? Well, we have an example of that. In John 17, he prayed to God, he prayed, he praised the Father, but he also prayed, prayed for his disciples. May they be one as you and I are one. Sanctify them with his truth. What I'm pointing out is that Jesus, as he would withdraw, as he would practice solitude, he would pray for others. He would pray for his disciples. He would pray for the future of the church. He would pray for you. He would pray for the needs of all those that were around him and he would pray for the needs of the world. And so very particularly in the moment that we find ourselves in, this is a gift to us as God is calling us to specifically invest in the people closest to, to us. God is calling you to invest in the people who you are closest with. And if you talk with anyone who has worked remotely for any length of season, they'll tell you that as you have the, a low structure, a low external structure is all around you. You need higher and increased intentionality. And so as God, in this moment, God is calling you to be more intentional, more intentional and disciplined in your relationships that are all around you. In your marriage, your family, with your roommates, with your neighbors, and more. This past Thursday, two of our community groups here in Westchester, we met via Zoom. 
And so one of the things that just embracing this call to deepen community means for us to actually embrace technology in positive ways, to interact and connect with one another. On Friday, which was a beautiful day, I might add, I was driving from my home over to here uh, in this church to, to work with Darren and Owen to set up for our live stream. I was driving over and I see three of our church members walking outside on this beautiful day, walking a dog. It was beautiful. Then I saw last night a friend from Seattle. He wrote this on Facebook. I'm in front of our house all day. And the street was active with entire families walking and riding bikes past, up and down. Multiple neighbors brought chairs out into their yards, six feet apart, and chatted for hours. A few planes flew overhead and left trails in the beautiful blue sky. Kids played soccer and two even brought out pogo sticks and bounced up and down the sidewalk. I was listening to the radio while cleaning out the garage. That's what his day was like yesterday. But I want to point out that none of this, none of this dismisses the legitimate pain that we all experience. None of this dismisses the the pain in the world. But but I want to point out to you is that community is a gift given to you to encourage you amid trials and tribulations and troubles. Well, we must never be ingrown where we are only focusing on ourselves. We actually must be outward looking. And this text even calls us to be outward looking as well. This is our third point. Quiet service. And this is the third aspect of the reset that God is calling all of us to. Quiet service. And as you, again, as you look at this text, you'll see that there's an element of service and justice here in this text. Verse 10. You shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. And if you keep going, you'll see an attack, a call to not wrong one another. There's this call to serve one another here in this text. But what does proclaiming liberty, what does serving one another look like for us right now? Rebecca McLaughlin, uh, she's the author of the book, Confronting Christianity. It's an incredible book. And she said last week on Twitter, it is deeply sad that the loving thing to do right now is to step back. It's within our Christian DNA to move towards others. But we, and we are called to be one body, reaching out our arms to embrace a hurting world. But we do that now by stepping back. And this is challenging to us. This is really challenging to us because we love uh, doing things for God. If you look at throughout church history, you'll see example after example of how hospitals were built. You'll see example after example of how uh, women's rights were fought and championed. And you just keep going, you'll see examples of Christians doing great things for their neighbor. But what God is calling us to right now is to, to do quiet things for our neighbor. And this is challenging to us. And even this week, I heard someone say, just tell me what to do. And do you hear the angst in that, in that statement? Just tell me what to do. God is calling us right now to a reset where we actually face the motive for why we serve. Do we serve to be seen, to be noticed, to be appreciated, to be thanked? Or do we serve to simply serve others, to pour out ourselves and sacrifice to others? Right now, I actually just want to uh, share a few things I've seen in our church life down here in Westchester. And this is where I'm literally going to be bragging on on our church for a moment. And so, like, for example, uh, this past week, Jennifer and I were given a gift. 
And one of our friends texted us and said, hey, we're going to a store. What can I get you? And, and they were going to Costco. Now, once again, I've never been to Costco. That is one of my claims to fame. I've never been to Costco. And so I have no idea what Costco really looks like, unless it's like Sam's, Sam's Club. And so they just said, hey, do you need anything? I was like, we need chicken and laundry detergent. And I've been to Giant. I've been to Aldi's. There's no meat there besides corned beef whatsoever. And so that night, uh, someone knocks on the door and leaves a package of nine, nine pounds of chicken on her doorstep. There's nine pounds of chicken in my freezer right now. That's a lot of chicken. It was just quietly left there. That's quiet service. When, while both Jennifer and I, we actually could go to the store, we're, we're juggling parenting and working from home right now, and it was a gift to us. It was, it was a quiet act of service and kindness uh, to us. And the reality is that the church is well practiced at bringing, bringing and cooking meals for others, whether they be new parents or grieving relatives. But, and so now is actually a time where we can actually use our systems and our and our skill set to benefit others, to especially to benefit the vulnerable. Here's another example. We have one individual in the church. This is inspiring to me. He moved out of his house to care for his brother, who is immunocompromised. That's incredible. That's incredible. And that's just an example of quiet service. It's also an example of sacrifice. Let's consider some other examples. Consider those who have lost their income, given our government's restrictions to essential services right now. How can you quietly serve them? Consider our healthcare workers and our churches who are working in stressful situations, who are nervous, fearing a shortage of protective equipment. How can you quietly serve them? There's another way that you can quietly serve, and that is actually spending money on local businesses that you are connected to. You can spend money as an act of economic love. And one of the huge effects of any pandemic, and we see this in history, is actually on the economy. We have many small businesses in our church families, in our communities. And while, while we must obey authorities, we must use whatever freedom and liberties that are before us to see our spending as an act of love where we can order takeout, purchase gift cards, to have our cars serviced by mechanics, and much more. That is one of the greatest things that we can just do, and that's just quiet service. And all these scenarios that I just presented to you, they all presume that you are actually in a position to serve. But what if you actually need to be served right now? What if you need to be served right now? You have a need. And so I invite you, I ask you to make it known. To make it known to church leadership. Because one of the greatest gifts that we can do as a church is to love one another and to love you very particularly. Earlier this week, I shared with Pastor Darren uh, that our churches, and especially Westchester, we are in a pivotal, pivotal moment in our church life. We're really in a make it or break it moment. Are we really a church that loves one another, that cares for one another, or is that just lips service? A few months ago, I, uh, it feels like a, month, a few months ago, it might have just been last month, I put it before the congregation this way. Are we all in for one another? Are we all in with one another? This is what God is calling us to, to quiet acts of service. 
Let me end with this. Rodney Stark, he wrote the book, Rise of Christianity, and he points out that how Christians navigated public health crises several times in the Roman Empire. And they, that was, those moments were pivotal, pivotal to the church growing and flourishing. While pagans fled to, to the countryside or evicted people out of their homes, Christians risked their own health to care for others. And that's remarkable. That's inspiring. But to paraphrase the words of black theologian Esau Macaulay, who was at Wheaton College, he pointed out that when historians ask, what did the church do in 2020? The answer is going to be that we submitted to our government. We met in smaller groups. We washed our hands. We prayed. And we were neighbors. Unglamorous as that is, that is the shape of faithfulness in our time. And that is what God is calling us to. That's the reset that God is calling us to. That's the reset that God is leading us into. And we are able to follow him. We are able to follow him because he is good. And that we know that because he has always been with us. He has always been faithful to us. And he has adopted us as his own family. That's the God that, that we have. And he's the one who is leading us now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the life that you have given us. We thank you uh, for this reset that you're calling us to. And Father, as we, th we look at your word, we ask that in the coming days, in the coming moments and weeks, perhaps months ahead, that we would live out uh, this faith that you are calling us to, that we would truly follow you for the good of our neighbors and the good of one another. And may we deepen our life with you as well. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.